0: Our text this morning is from the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 11, and then reading down through the first handful of verses in chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 4. As always, I invite you, you hear me say it every Sunday, I hope you don't get tired of hearing me say it, but to have your Bibles open and to follow. Um, I can remember way back in uh, La Minnesota, when I was the first church I was pastoring, uh, there was a young couple that uh, visited one Sunday, and I met them out on the front steps after the service, and they said, when we came here, before we even walked in the door, we knew this was the place for us. And I said, how did you know? Because everybody was coming carrying their Bibles. That has stuck with me over all these years, that I don't come just to passively sit and see the words on the screen, but I come to read and mark and underline and circle, those kinds of things, because just to hear it, you've heard me say before, by, by tomorrow, this time, you'll have forgotten like 75% of what I said, if you don't write anything down or mark anything or look at something. You know, when I think about that, that's really discouraging. <laughs> you know, you, know you, you, you put things together for a message, and it's like, so how many are going to, within a day, pretty much remember a little bit of nothing of what was said? So I hope if you're not in the habit of bringing your Bibles, you'll get in the habit of doing that. If you're not in the habit of bringing a pen or a pencil or a piece of paper with you, I hope you'll get in the habit of doing that, because what my desire is that what I lay out on a Sunday morning, you'll go back to on Monday. You'll look at what maybe you wrote down, what you marked, read through it again, think through it, pray through it, say, Lord, okay, I was sitting in church and, and some things came to mind, but what do you want to say to me in this passage? Um, what promises are there that I need to lay hold of? What things do I need to confess? How do I need to rightly respond to your word? So, so again, I, I challenge you to, to bring your Bibles, have them open, follow along uh, in, in, a, in a heart-to-heart way as God's word is, is proclaimed. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11, Paul says, We have freely spoken to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. To those of you like me that grew up in a very strict evangelical environment, this passage is very familiar. Do not be unequally yoked together, the passage says. Come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch the unclean thing. And in evangelical circles years ago, oftentimes this passage was used to justify a sort of Um, isolation from the world, not an Amish sort of isolation, but an isolation nonetheless. And and those of us who grew up in that culture, who grew up in that environment, both my wife and I did, uh, we know very well what was the unofficial checklist of righteous behavior that we were expected to observe. You don't do this, I haven't, good, check. You don't do this, check. You don't do this, check. And I do the following, and in our minds, in our hearts, was a whole unofficial checklist of what we were expected to observe. And the the thought was, if you observe all these things, then you are a good Christian. Then you're spiritual. Then you're holy. Then God is pleased with you. And looking back on all of it, it was all well-intentioned, as my wife and I have talked about many times. No question about it. But much of it was mechanical and artificial and arbitrary. And the irony of of all of it, as I thought through this, is what our unofficial checklists were of this is what constitutes worldliness. Actually, by having that checklist, it allowed a dangerous kind of worldliness to take hold in the heart. A worldliness that ended up poisoning true spiritual life. And not only that, but as I have seen many, many times, having that sort of checklist kind of Christianity ends up driving people away from the church. If that's the Christian faith, I'm done with it. And away they go. Now, the problem was, was not, and is not this passage of Scripture. But the problem is how this passage was sometimes or is sometimes understood and how the passage is applied. So let me state as clearly as I can with that little bit of introduction, we need to hear Paul's call to holiness and separation, period. We need to hear Paul's call to holiness and separation in this text loud and clear in our day. Make no mistake about that. I'm gonna come back to that in several minutes and press home what all of this is about. But before we get there, I want you to understand that this section of verses is an outworking of what Paul has written so far in his letter. And if you were to go back, and if this were a Bible study, we would go back and look at chapter 2 and verse 14, where Paul starts defending his call. He starts his defense of his apostleship, of his ministry, of the message he preached. We're still in Paul's defense as he's, as we come to this passage. And Paul starts his great defense all the way back in chapter 2 because there are those in the church who have become alienated from Paul. Not everybody, but there were those who had become alienated. There were those who were enamored of the, the false teachers who had come to Corinth who said, I know this is what Paul said, we've got a better gospel, a new and improved gospel. Don't listen to what he has to say, we've got the real thing. And there were those in Corinth who had started to buy into it and say, well, maybe Paul wasn't correct. Maybe he isn't sent by the Lord. Maybe he isn't an apostle. Maybe I shouldn't believe anything he says. And so Paul has been vigorously defending his ministry from chapter 2 verse 14 onward. And not because, you've heard me say several times, not because he's personally offended. Not because somebody hurt his feelings. But his concern is, if people are alienated from me, they're going to be alienated from the message of heaven that I've been entrusted with. And so if people reject me, that's not the issue, but they're going to end up rejecting the gospel, and that to Paul is all that mattered in the end. And so here in this text, as Paul is drawing his defense to a close, defense of his apostleship, he is issuing a call in this passage for the whole church to be reconciled to him again. And so let's walk our way through this text, starting in the first three verses, 11 through 13. If I can summarize what Paul says, you notice in verse 11, we've spoken freely to you. I've spoken openly. I've spoken honestly. Paul says, my heart is open to you. I I hope you understand that. My heart is wide open to you, Paul says. But the problem is, you're not reconciled. We should be. You're my children in the faith. But the problem is, although my heart is wide open to all of you, in spite of all the things that have transpired, your heart is not all that wide open to me in return. Oh, it's wide open to suspicion. If there's a rumor or some kind of personal attack, it's like, let me hear it. You're wide open to all of that, Paul says, but there's not much room left in your heart for a relationship with me. And so you notice in verse 13, Paul says, I call on you as a father speaks to his children, verse 13, widen your hearts also. Now, if those of you that are in the medical field, you know in terms of medical condition, if somebody has an enlarged heart, that's not a good thing. That's dangerous. But in the spiritual realm, oh, that we all had enlarged hearts. Because that's what Paul's talking about. An enlarged heart among believers in Christ is a wonderful thing. To, To look at genuine believers, to be together with openness, growing openness, warmth, welcome, fellowship together in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I pray that spiritually speaking, you might have an enlarged heart. And so Paul in these verses here, is pleading with the Corinthians for reconciliation. And then what seems to be like an out of the blue, abrupt, total change in topic, he then says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I mean, it comes out of the blue. It's like, where does that come from? He's been defending his apostleship. He's urging reconciliation. What in the world is this statement all about? Where does it come from? How do these words and what follows have any connection to his defending his apostleship, calling them to reconciliation, restoring relationships, calling for a two-way street, open-heartedness on each end? Well, to understand how this fits into what Paul is saying, we need to start by defining who unbelievers are in this context. Who are they? Well, there are some who look at this passage and say, well, what Paul is talking about is those outside the church, uh, those who are the pagan Gentiles that are in the culture in Corinth. Paul is speaking about them. Uh, And indeed, if you go a little earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, that is exactly how Paul uses the term. Here's what he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers... Same word as in our text. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul, in 4.4, is talking about unbelievers in the sense of those that are out in the world, those that have nothing to do with the church, reject the whole idea of the Christian faith, it's ridiculous, they throw it all aside. Unbelievers, and they're blinded and they don't see the truth, Paul says. Now, if you were to read through 1 Corinthians you would find that Paul uses the same word, unbeliever, 11 times in the letter. And in each case, it refers to the non-Christian out there, every time Paul uses it. In fact, when you read 1 Corinthians, you discover what part of the problem in the church in Corinth was, that there were those in the congregation who were compromising, with the pagan culture that was all around in the city of Corinth and indeed throughout the Roman Empire. There were those in the church who, if I can paraphrase, said, hey, you know, I can believe in Jesus, but I can live my life in accordance with the norms and practices of the non-Christians around me. I don't see what the problem is. There were those in the Corinthian congregation who said, you know, I can join in with pagan religious practices, I can go to church on Sunday, but then I can be involved in other pagan activities and believe in Jesus at the same time. What's the problem with that? There were others in Corinth, we discover this from Paul's first letter, I can attend these lavish banquets that various temples host. You know, Temple of Apollo might be hosting a Thursday night dinner, or the Temple of Venus, or whatever it might be. You know, I, I can go to one of those dinners that's spo- under the sponsorship of one of these pagan gods. I can have a great dinner. I can hang out with my friends, have a few drinks. I don't see what the problem is. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians says that sort of thing cannot be. And he addresses it all very forcefully in his first letter to the Corinthians. And so the question is, when Paul talks about unbelievers here, is he talking about the same sort of things he addressed in 1 Corinthians? Well, he certainly could be. I don't believe he actually is. But he certainly could be. But whether he is directly or not, without question, the words of our text are certainly applicable to every issue he raises in 1 Corinthians. But in the context of Paul defending his apostleship, calling for reconciliation with some in the church, to understand in the context, the unbelievers are those false teachers who had come to Corinth saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, Uh, I'm sent from heaven, listen to my message, and Paul says, they're not Christians, they call themselves that, But when you get right down to it, they are as much unbelievers as the pagan Apollo worshipers out in the city of Corinth. So Paul is speaking, yes, about unbelievers, but the peddlers of a false gospel, the false apostles. And Paul says, even though they claim the name of Christ, let's be straight about it, Paul says. They are unbelievers, have nothing to do with them is what he's saying in this passage. In fact, I want you to notice in chapter 11, where Paul will, near the end of his letter, get down to talking very specifically about those who have invaded Corinth after he's gone. And notice how Paul describes them. He, in, in verse 5 of chapter 11, he sarcastically calls them super-apostles. Then in verse 13, he calls them false apostles, deceitful workmen. They are those who disguise themselves, he says, as apostles of Christ. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. That sounds kind of dire, doesn't it? What is their end? Well, you can understand Paul's implication. And then he ends in verse 26 by calling them false brothers, or the NIV translates it, false believers, And so when Paul says, have no fellowship with unbelievers, in the context, he's talking about the false teachers who claim the name of Christ, but they're just as much an unbeliever as everybody else in Corinth. No matter what they profess, no matter what they claim, no matter how holy they seem to be, they are outside of Christ, they are unbelievers, and have nothing to do with them. And so Paul, in this passage, speaks to that issue. Uh, But the larger point that Paul makes here... And uh, in his letter in 1 Corinthians, is that a believer, you and I, whether it's in our private life, whether it's in the area of personal morality, whether it's in the public arena, wherever it is, we need to be careful that we, that we don't get involved in, that we separate ourselves from everything that is incompatible with the Christian faith or would compromise Christian standards. Now, don't misunderstand Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that setting such boundaries doesn't mean that believers are to avoid contact with unbelievers. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5.10. He said, if that's what I'm saying, which I'm not, but if that's what I'm saying, to quote Paul, then you would need to go out of the world. You couldn't live on planet Earth, so I'm not saying that. No, we associate with unbelievers all the time, every day, in all the things of ordinary life. This passage isn't addressing any of that. But by the very nature of things, there cannot be an active heart fellowship, a partnership, an alliance between the believer and unbeliever because there are things that ultimately matter where we are miles and miles apart. We can't be involved and tied in with something that brings dishonor and discredit to Jesus Christ, be tied in with something that in any way would deny his person, would deny his work, or would undermine a Christian testimony. And so Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And as I say, in the context, it applies also to what he says in 1 Corinthians, but specifically here in the line of argument, he's talking about the false teachers They call themselves Christians, but don't be deceived. They're in the category of unbeliever, Paul says. So do not be yoked, unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what Paul is doing, if you have a marginal note in your Bible, um, Paul is paraphrasing something from the law of Moses. From Deuteronomy chapter 22 in verse 10, where the law of Moses says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So you yoke those two animals up, so you're going to plow in the spring, so you have the yoke, and you put a donkey on one side, an ox on the other side, it's not going to work out real well, the law of Moses says. The animals are of unequal size. They are of unequal strength. But but that's not even the main issue, because if you read the law of Moses, in the law of Moses, the ox is a clean animal, the donkey is in the category of unclean. And so what Paul is saying, believers and unbelievers are two different breeds, if, if I can paraphrase them. One is clean, cleansed by the blood of Christ, one is unclean. You can't put a clean and an unclean in the same, same yoke and expect good things to happen. So how can a believer and an unbeliever pull in a unified direction? Paul is saying, if we as believers are called to plow a straight furrow for Christ, so to speak, you can't do it being yoked to an unbeliever. Why? Because believers and unbelievers at the core have radically different goals and worldviews and values. And so hence, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And to drive home his point, Paul asks five rhetorical questions. Verse 14 through verse 16. All of them require a negative answer. And here are the questions. Here's the first one. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The obvious answer is none. Question number two. What fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none. Light and darkness are totally incompatible. Question number three. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is a Bible name for Satan. And so Paul says, Do Satan and Christ agree on anything? What's the obvious answer? The answer is no. Question number four, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And the answer is none. There are no shared commitments in what actually matters. Yes, in the external things of life there is partnership and portion, but in what really matters there is no portion together, the one with the other. The answer is none. What portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? And then the fifth rhetorical question is, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And the obvious answer is none. And so to support what Paul has just written, these stark contrasts, Paul then turns to quoting the Old Testament. And you notice it, verse 16 to the end of the chapter through verse 18. And Paul, as he quotes, he draws phrases from four different passages in the Old Testament, and he combines them together as though they're one quotation. Um, If you have study notes in your Bible and you want to pursue it, you can see where these quotations come from, the four different passages that, uh, that Paul has in mind that he's citing in this text. But Paul simply wants us to know, he puts them all together, and the point that Paul wants us to get in this passage is that Everything he says is directly drawn from the pages of Scripture. This is what God is saying, not what he, as Paul, per se, is saying. And you notice as Paul begins this series of quotations drawn from four different passages, you notice at the end of verse 16, as he's ready to quote, Paul says, as God said, comma, and then the quotations begin, You go down to the middle of the quotations, verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and then you come to the very end, all the quotations are completed, and you come to verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, three times. So Paul says, this isn't my own narrow-minded opinion on something. This is what God's word says in many different places and in many different ways. And so what's the point? The point comes then in chapter 7. Since we have these promises, well, what promises? Go back and, and look at the preceding verses. Promises of God dwelling among us. Promises of God walking with us through life. Promises that we belong to him, he belongs to us. Promises of welcome, promises of relationship, promises of family. You shall be my sons and daughters. Since we have all these tremendous great promises, beloved, let us therefore cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So you notice it doesn't start with the checklist, does it? It starts from relationship if you're living in a living relationship with me, out of that, then cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Come out and be separate. Don't touch the unclean. And notice at the end of seven, chapter 7 verse 1, bring holiness to completion, to maturity in the fear of God. That's a key passage, a key verse for, so how do we grow in holiness? Is it the checklist or is it something else? You notice, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Out of reverence for God, out of awe for Him, out of a living relationship with the Lord, let us out of that continue to grow in grace, continue to grow in holiness, in thought, in word and deed. Let us press on to maturity, as Hebrews 6.1 puts it. Let us keep ourselves unspotted from the world, James chapter 1 and verse 27. And so the path to holiness, which is what we're called to in this passage, the, the way to separation from this world, which we're called to in this passage, is not willpower, it's not rules, it's not checklists, but it is relationship, it is worship. Do you notice that? In the fear of God. When that is as it should be, then that will spur you. How should I live my life? What should I do? What should I not do? What's pleasing to the Lord? You start with the relationship being strong, vibrant, growing, and healthy. And then under the spirit of God, you say, what does this look like for me? In my life, in my walk with him. Well, then Paul comes full circle. Um, Back in verse 13. Verse 13 beginning of our text Paul had said to the Corinthians widen your hearts to us and now in chapter 7 verse 2 he comes back to it and he says make room in your hearts for us why should your heart remain closed to me Paul says Because as you know, this is what he's saying to the Corinthians, there is nothing in my past conduct, there is nothing in my teaching that lends any substance to the criticisms, to the charges that have been leveled against me. What does he say in verse 2? I've injured no one, I've not led anyone astray, I've not taken advantage of anybody, Paul says. And so he's very strong. And then he says in verse 3, now don't misunderstand, I'm not saying this to condemn you, he says. You Corinthians are forever in my heart. You think of all the problems in Corinth, and Paul still writes this. You Corinthians are forever in my heart. And then notice this interesting expression we die together and we live together. Shouldn't it be the other way around? We live and die together? You know, permanent relationship of friendship and love now and right to the end? No, that's not what Paul is saying. We're bound together. What does he say? We die together, we live together. Christ died for us, and now he lives. He rose again. What is it that brings us together? We're brought together in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So in Jesus, we as believers, we die together and we live together, Paul says. And then he ends the text, verse 4, by saying, I know I've spoken really boldly here. I know I've spoken in a, you know maybe even kind of a sharp sort of way. But Paul says, in the midst of all of our troubles... And the strong words that I've written up to this point, notice what Paul says. This is amazing. I have great pride in you. Really? Well, Paul's sincere as he writes this. I have confidence in you. I am overflowing with joy. All right, that's our text. So now I want to come to the practical application for you and me. I want you to understand the text first and now the so what of it all for you and me. And so I want to touch on three takeaways in closing from this passage. And here's the first one. This passage calls us to separate from those who deny the fundamentals of biblical Christianity. Make no mistake about it. This passage calls us to separation from those who deny the fundamentals of biblical Christianity but not from those who differ with us on minor matters of interpretation. So, for example, talking about the coming of Christ, I think this is how the rapture is going to happen. No, I think it's going to be this way. Oh, I can't have fellowship with you. We're not in agreement. No, that's not what Paul is talking about, those kinds of minor areas where Christians can legitimately disagree. But he's talking about these kind of fundamental things. Have nothing to do with false doctrinal teaching. Separate yourselves from it. So if there are, are those who deny, for example, the inspiration and authority and infallibility of Scripture, or deny the deity of Christ, or the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, His blood forgiving us of our sins, who deny the resurrection, the bodily resurrection on the third day, who deny the Trinity, who say there's other ways of salvation besides Jesus have nothing to do with them Paul says the passage is very clear on this do not be unequally yoked together come out from among them and be separate says the Lord I would even say this has to do with denominations if there are Christians in denominations who uh, have set aside some of these things or on moral ethical issues I would say that Christian needs to get out of that congregation and go somewhere else this is to me what this passage says Come out from among them and be separate. But it's not talking about separating from those who aren't our denomination, uh, who don't interpret everything exactly like we do, or say, here's how we should do ministry. No, I think we should do it this way. No, that's not the issue here. It's not a call to split theological hairs and then separate from those on little minuscule points we disagree with. But we need to understand this in this day, because there are things in our society, in our culture, and theology, we need to take a stand on these things and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with X or Y. Paul says, come out from among those kinds of things and be separate. Don't in any way be unequally yoked together. This passage is very clear on that. Here's the second takeaway. This passage is a call to Repentance. It is a call to reckon with sin in our own lives and in the life of the church. What did Jesus say in John's gospel? To paraphrase him, Jesus said, we are in the world, yes, but we are not of the world. And what I find in so many churches, and yes, even in professing evangelical churches, how many that sit in an evangelical church are more and more like the world. Or of the world, or are accepting and adopting of things in culture and society that shouldn't be so. And as I've been thinking about this, I think the root of the problem, especially in evangelicalism, which our church is part of, a part of the root problem is a pervasive biblical ignorance. We do not know the Holy Scriptures. We do not know the word of God. We know a few things. We know Noah and the ark and Daniel in the lion's den and Jesus died on the cross and rose again, but that's about it. There is a pervasive biblical ignorance, yes, in the evangelical church. And so what does that lead to then? It leads to accommodation of all kinds. It leads to ethical accommodation of all kinds. Um... I remember a lady in, in the church in uh, Minot. She's since gone home to be with the Lord. And she was talking to me before uh, one of the services on Sunday morning. And she said, you know, I, I just have a real trouble with homosexuality, but I, but I guess I'm probably being judgmental, aren't I? I said, you're not being judgmental. The word of God speaks to that Clearly. When the Word of God speaks to something clearly, we need to stand on what the Scripture has to say and and not be swept away. But when you don't know the Word, it's like, well, I know maybe I didn't grow up that way. However, nevertheless, that sort of thing. There is all kinds of ethical and moral accommodations that take place. This passage speaks against that. And when you have an uninformed group of believers, even in an evangelical congregation... What can happen is when I preach a message like this or a church takes a stand on something and it's kind of confrontive, it's like, I don't want to listen to that. I got my ideas. I've got my opinions. Whenever a pastor or a church says, this is right, this is wrong, this is black, this is white, when an issue is addressed in a straightforward way, there are those even sitting in the seats who say, I'm not going to listen to that stuff. I remember that happened when I was in Minot. One of the elders had invited uh, somebody in his uh, circle of work to come to church and came for some Sundays, and after a while, he didn't come back. And I discovered it's because I was, like, too hard, too black, too white. This is the way it is on the base of God's Word. And so he's like, not going back there. I'm going to find a church that will affirm what I already think and is not going to confront me or challenge me on anything. And so when there is a biblical ignorance... Uh, you know, people take resentment at a passage like this or even preaching like this. But but this passage warns us against embracing the spirit of relativism in this age. It warns us against what in, in modern parlance is called tolerance. When I was growing up, toleration was a good thing, it was a great American virtue. But toleration has been redefined, as I hope you understand. Now, toleration means you can't say anything wrong about anything. You can't say, on the basis of Scripture, gay marriage is wrong. That's intolerant. That's bigoted. Even if you say, I love all people, I welcome you, we can be friends, but I, what I believe you're doing is wrong. You can't say that under the new definition of toleration and toleration now is where you are expected if you're tolerant you must embrace you must affirm you must celebrate whatever the latest in culture and society is regardless of what the Bible says this passage stands clearly against that this passage calls us to stand on the word of God to have nothing to do with those kinds of things and not in an angry, belligerent way, but to say, I'm going to seek to live in line with God's word, a life of holiness, and this is where I stand. You might not like it. I'm not belligerent about it. I'm not angry about it. But this is where I stand as a Christian. Well, let me give you one more takeaway from this passage. This passage does call us to purity. There's no question about it. But not for the sake of isolation, but for the sake of mission. When 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 believers in a church are together seeking Christ and his glory, that congregation becomes powerful in ministry and and mission. Let me read you something from John Barclay. He's a current uh, British New Testament scholar. He was writing about the church in Corinth. And as I read the little paragraph, I thought, how apt a description this is for the modern American church. Here's what he writes about the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. He said, the Corinthian church is not a cohesive community, but a club whose meetings provide important moments of spiritual insight and exaltation, but do not have global implications of moral and social change. The Corinthians could gladly participate in this church as one segment of their lives. But the segment, however important, is not the whole and it is not the center. Their perception of the church and of the significance of their faith could correlate well with a lifestyle which remained fully integrated into Corinthian society. All right, Barclay is, is absolutely right on this. The, the Corinthians got along really well with their community. It's because they didn't take a stand on anything. Their faith didn't create any ripples anywhere. They would have never have been persecuted or sidelined because they practiced or embraced or tolerated or didn't say anything about whatever was going on in pagan Corinth. It's all's well that you know, that ends well, I guess, is what they would say. And how different, you, you read Uh, In the New Testament, how many first century churches faced persecution, sometimes very severely? The Corinthian church faced zero persecution, and why not? Because they weren't a threat to anybody. No threat to any person, institution, whatever it was. What does this scripture say? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. The the contrast in our text couldn't be any clearer. Here they are. On the one side, there is righteousness and light and Christ and believers and the temple of God. On the other side is lawlessness, darkness, Satan, unbelievers, and idols. What fellowship, what agreement is there? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And so my desire is that our lives, our congregation, would be so clearly marked by the things of heaven that there would be a Bible-centered holiness that comes out of relationship with God That when all is said and done, that God is glorified, that the power of God might flow unhindered in our lives, that ministry and mission in our congregation would have power, would flourish, and that those who are lost, yes, might be drawn to the Savior. I will make my dwelling with you. You will be my sons and daughters. And out of that, when we grab hold of that, all right, Lord, You as my heavenly Father, I as your son and daughter, if I'm seeking to honor you, what should my life look like? And with your Bible open and the Spirit of God speaking to you, you make those decisions. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we live in a day and age where kind of anything goes. Uh, Even in uh, the realm of Christendom, somebody can deny all kinds of fundamental doctrines and we say, well, I don't agree with that, but... Or when it comes to moral issues uh, of all kinds, some right at the forefront in society, we can say, "Well, I don't agree. That wasn't how I was brought up," or or those kind of milquetoast things. Uh, but Lord, we need to take a stand. We need to say, "There is right. There is wrong. This is where I stand. I want my life." To honor the Lord Jesus, to honor his word, to honor the truth that he sets forth. How shall a young man keep his way pure? We read that in our opening reading. By taking heed according to your word. And so, Lord, we don't withdraw from the world. We're in the world. We interact with all kinds of people every day. That's how it should be. That's the way it is. How are we going to reach anybody if we go live off in a shack out in the middle of the prairie? So you've called us to interact with people on every level. And what a joy that can be. But in the midst of it all, let our light shine. Let our convictions be firm. Let Jesus be seen. We ask these things for His sake. Amen.